This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Sunday, February 12, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. Don't give politicians credit for the good things that they do. Not now, and definitely not in the past. Anthony Kamegna, assistant editor for intellectual history at libertarianism.org, discusses just why politicians, past and present, ought to be regarded carefully. What does the election of Donald Trump, and now that he has become president and begun to spell out and uh, implement some of the things that he's wanted to do, what does that mean for libertarians and the broad libertarian movement? Well, I'd say that is an extremely broad question Um, because technically it's about as broad as the libertarian movement. Uh, Every individual person is essentially going to be responsible for their own actions in the upcoming eight years uh, and maybe in the past year, um, how they might have affected this outcome in the election, uh, how strongly they may have supported the new president, uh, how weakly they may have challenged him, um, what we all have to say about his actions as as time goes on here. I think you know uh, <laughs> we will have a, a historical record that uh, is is without parallel in human history for the next eight years. People's reactions to politics and uh, and vice versa. So, however libertarians respond to the new president, uh, I think we will have probably the best idea. Of, of how libertarianism is dealing with politics that we've ever had. Uh, the clearest picture of who exactly supported him, why, to what extent, for how long, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so however libertarians do respond to it, we will know it. There is sort of, a, a I think, a, a triangulation that whether or not you like Donald Trump is uh, interesting to see play out, which is so much of his platform is stridently different from what has come to be uh, Republican doctrine regarding entitlements, regarding trade, uh, to a lesser extent regarding immigration. Uh, He sounds a lot like a Democrat on on some of those issues, but on regulation and taxes, uh, he doesn't. He sounds like a Republican. So it seems like there's this huge opportunity for a a triangulation of the parties to deal with somebody who doesn't fit very well within either party. Yeah, I, I think you know it. It seems like that may be the case. Although, for for one thing, the party platforms have not really mattered since the Jacksonian era. Uh, parties ignore them at will, and uh, of course, there's no mechanism to hold them accountable for doing so. Um, so the party platform doesn't necessarily matter. And even though as a as a party, the Republicans have been free trade and uh, low tax and so on uh, in their their rhetoric. Their policies obviously do not comport with what libertarians consider free trade uh, or low taxes um, or anything else, low regulation, whatever other economic liberty factors you would want to name. Republicans are not necessarily on board with that as a matter of principle. And in fact, you know, the, as most people who are aware of such things know, the history of the Republican Party is in protectionism, um, and it's it's in high taxes too, for that matter. Um, and you know, there's no particular reason I see that uh, any any particular political party would uh, ossify uh, in one direction or the other, pro-liberty or anti-liberty, for too long. They do what is uh, needed 
at the moment for political expediency, for individual reasons, um, power and gain. Um, pretty much everything a politician does is, is avaricious in some way. Uh, so even, even when they are doing things that seem friendly to the liberty interest, uh, I don't think we can afford uh, as a movement or as intellectuals who are honest with our ideas, I don't think we can afford to give them a single inch of credit. Um, and we, we also then can't praise the, the parties for, you know, challenging their leaders or for getting behind their leaders when, you know, the, the leader is doing something pro-liberty or what have you. We should not give any of these people any type of credit at any step. What about a hundred years ago? Can we can we give credit? So, for example, uh, let's Jimmy Carter, uh, the greatest deregulatory president of the twentieth century. Does he not deserve credit for having deregulated commercial trucking and uh, freight rail and airlines, et cetera? Well, I don't know that phrasing "deserve." Does he deserve credit? That sort you're, of you're saying that credit no. is just not a relevant metric to use for political people. Yes, for libertarians. We should not want to uh, put ourselves in the position of saying something that can be construed as simply or merely friendly to a politician, uh, whatever the, the subject of discussion. So, uh, you know, Carter deregulates, well, big deal. So many other things about his administration were terrible. You know, Jackson kills the Bank of the United, of the United States. Libertarians love that. It initiates a period of free banking for decades in the U.S., but so what? Jackson was a terrible president. He was a terrible human being. Um, he was not a friend of liberty in virtually any sense of the modern word. Um, and even the, the reasons for his veto of the bank were avaricious and political. Uh, for the most part, these Jacksonian Democrats who were opposed to the National Bank wanted the power to regulate state banks without an overarching controlling figure on the issue of state bank notes. Uh, the National Bank constrained the issuing power of state banks and acted as a check on inflation. So by the 20th century, we have such a confused idea of what happened in the 19th century uh, because we want to praise politicians when they do things we think we would like if it happened today, right? But that separates the actor and the action from the context. Uh, and in doing that, you ruin the study of history. History is about connecting actions, actors, and contexts. Uh, and if you don't do that, you're not doing history, you're doing mythology. So there's no such thing as profiles and courage for politicians in your view? Geez, we could come up with some fun profiles, but it would not be in courage. Uh, yeah, I, we probably shouldn't name the uh, titles. <laughs> so, I guess what? Why do that? Why uh, you're? I mean, you're making a, a sort of an argument here that yes, you libertarians should quit romanticizing government so much or politicians, which you know libertarians love to think that they don't do that. Oh yeah, no, don't get me wrong. Too, we we have a great record. Obviously, our whole movement for hundreds of years is built on challenging power and the status quo. Uh, but often, we're not as good at that as we should be, and we forget to do it. Uh, and you know, some people might be better at this than others. Ron Paul, I expect, has always been, will always be uh, a purist, and will be you know, remembered as basically the one person in all of American political life who was not out to control others. 
uh, extremely rare. And I think we, you know, may never see that like again in, in normal political life. Uh, maybe when the libertarian millennium approaches, we'll have Ron Paul's everywhere. But for now, he's an extremely rare breed. Um, and I, I just think that every time we give even the slightest bit of credence and credit to political actors and their policies, we empower them beyond what we would have liked them to do. And there's no way for us to control that either. Um, so let's take this historical example. We talked about old hickory. Let's talk about young hickory, James K. Polk. Uh, <clears throat> and we've covered the loco foco movement of radical Jacksonians somewhat on this podcast before and on libertarianism.org. And James K. Polk was a loco foco. He was Speaker of the House in the late 1830s under Van Buren, a loco foco radical administration. He was all on board their domestic platform, uh, but he was a slaveholder, he was pro-slavery, and he was expansionist in terms of territorial annexation. Uh, and Polk was able to use the period of the early 1840s under a Whig presidency and then a nonpartisan presidency under John Tyler uh, to basically, not that Polk was doing this, but Democrats were building state by state a strong enough coalition to regain the White House. They just barely managed to motivate enough pro-Van Buren, anti-slavery New Yorkers to go ahead and get behind Polk after Van Buren lost the primary. Go ahead, get behind Polk. We'll put your, all your radical people at the top of the ticket for state office if you just get out the vote for Polk, right? He loves your economic platform. He's a radical right there with you, wants an independent treasury, wants low tariffs, wants you know uh, low taxes. Um, he also wants territorial expansion. Uh, and yeah, that would include slave territory in the Southwest, but it'll also include Oregon. And we'll, we'll get all Oregon for you, we promise. Well, Democrats actually like that idea. Radicals of the day, the loco focos, the, the small L libertarians of the era went for that deal. Not in mass, not fully, but in large enough numbers that Polk's election came down to about 5,000 votes in New York State and Pennsylvania too. If either one of those states had flipped from just a few thousand votes Henry Clay would have been president. Texas probably wouldn't have been annexed. Slavery wouldn't have been the dividing issue that it was, at least not in the way that it was. Uh, but during the Polk administration, all those things happened. It split the Democratic Party and uh, led to the, the sectional period in the 1850s and, and Civil War. And now the thing that upset an awful lot of Northern Democrats and libertarians, though, was not the extension of slavery but that he failed to get all of Oregon, right? He had to compromise with the British because he didn't want to fight a war with Mexico and with Great Britain. So we'll fulfill Southerners' manifest destiny and we'll leave Northerners' manifest destiny uh, aside for now. And that was too much for them to take, right? It's not the pro-slavery. It's that we didn't get our power fulfilled, right? We didn't get our power maximized and our pool within the Union uh, to equilibrate with the South. And uh, when, when that issue then became personalized to these individuals in the North, and it looked like slavery was now not just an abstract problem in the South, but it's something that's creeping up North and affecting my personal liberty, then they got critical of the president. Well, 
I think the mistake here, and in so many of these other cases that we could bring up, that literally it's all throughout libertarian history. There's these moments of compromise and uh, uh, sort of crisis of character uh, where we have to decide, do we do expediency or do we do principle? Um, too often we go with expediency, and we might not like to think about that. We might prefer to mythologize those moments, but the simple facts are libertarians are uh, often not as good as we like to think we are. Because people like to draw parallels. <laughs> what parallels do you see here? You say that Polk uh, ultimately split the Democratic Party, um, but uh, and I believe you also predicted that Donald Trump would only seek one term, which uh, <laughs> that, I think he's already said that he won't do that. Well, sure, but that, in fairness, that was a private prediction. <laughs> I did not, I did not make that prediction as a historian or anything else. Uh, it is, it was interesting to me though. It used to be very popular for presidents to, to, as a campaign promise, I will only run for one term. I'll only seek one term. Polk did that. The idea being. I'm not going to be an executive tyrant. I only want to get in the White House, do the people's business for a few years, accomplish my goals, and then I'm out, and you can elect somebody else, right? And I thought, for sure, that's the kind of message Trump wants out there in the primary campaign. I figured as a way of winning that, as a way of reassuring people that he's not as radical and crazy as people think, that he'll only run for one term accomplish a few th key things and, and leave. Um, now, obviously, he didn't make that promise, but it does still seem like he has just a few key things that he's really interested in and really wants to do, some of which are captivating to libertarians, like, for example, repeal and replace Obamacare. Now, we might want to focus on the repeal part, but he also has promised to replace it with something much, much better. Uh, what's that going to look like? I don't know, but I know libertarians should have nothing to do with it. Um, he wants to build a giant wall. Well, why libertarians support that? I have no clue other than a, an, an almost principleless uh, uh, attachment to traditional institutions and culture. Uh, it's a, a profoundly conservative point of view, I think, antithetical to libertarianism, but nonetheless, it's a major part of our movement. Um, so I, you know, I think Trump goes into office with a, a, a rather short list of things that he really cares about, uh, many of which are going to get people from all sides of American life on board with him, and then the others of which will make them hate him. So how he walks that tightrope, I don't know. He might have about the same kind of trouble that John Tyler did. If he can't keep his party behind him, if he can't keep some base of support uh, that is you know, in Washington, I think his ability to do uh, the work, whether it's the people's work or the party's work or the president's work, his ability to do the work is severely hampered if he doesn't uh, court some kind of political base aside from, hey, everybody, I'm Donald Trump. That's, I don't think that's enough to get him through an, an actual administration. And in any case, you argue we shouldn't give him credit for any of those uh things we might like that he gets through. Never. Not a bit. Uh, I think any credit you're going to give him is only going to encourage him, uh, which has been said about politicians a lot. Don't, don't give them any praise or credit. It only encourages them. Uh, and I think that's true. And what is worse, it attaches our name, our movement to his cause. It might be to a small degree, 
But that all depends on the individuals within libertarianism and how they react to Trump. Anthony Comegna is assistant editor for intellectual history at libertarianism.org. Subscribe to and rate this podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.